When it comes to engine performance, the original Turbo F1 era is one of the standouts, the sort of power levels that they were extracting out of these engines, particularly for the era and how advanced the electronics were at the time, is really incredible. It's not often we get to talk to people that have been involved at this level, but we're here with Jeff from Jeff Page Racing to do exactly that. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So Jeff, you've got a long and pretty prestigious uh, resume with the engines you've been involved with over the years, but uh, uh, today I really want to focus on this F1 turbo era and we've all heard sort of power numbers thrown around up to uh, around 1500 horsepower and qualifying trim from only a 1.5 litre engine. Uh, now even today those sorts of numbers are pretty incredible but again as I've mentioned given the technology that was available back then even more impressive. So for a start I just want to talk about the engine construction. Uh, now the one that we've got here in your workshop is the Hart 415T. Uh, interestingly a four cylinder engine with some quite unique construction. Can you talk to us about the monoblock design of that engine? Yeah, well, basically, Brian Hart evolved the uh, two-liter four-cylinder 420R engine into the turbo 1500, what we now know as a 415T. But the first 415T was, in fact, a two-liter Hart uh, de-stroked, uh, which therefore still had a head gasket. They had a lot of gasket issues, as you would expect in the early days, sort of 81 vintage, and they realized that... Um, it's all been done before with aero engines, but they realised a monoblock would be the way to go. So deleting the head gasket, deleting the head studs, uh, deleting any issues between a head and a block, they started to evolve and design and evolve the uh, Form 4T as we know it today, which obviously being a monoblock, you know, you've got no reliability issues. Um, and it went through many generations. The first engines were mechanically injected, a um, bit rough and ready, but they did work. Um, There's a huge amount of information, so I just want to stop you there before we go too far down down the path. So I think for our viewers who maybe aren't sort of up to speed on, on where the problems lie with turbocharged engines, uh, so getting rid of that head gasket joint is, is an issue because really when it comes to a turbocharged engine, we're pushing a huge amount of cylinder pressure into the engine. That's how we're making power. But of course, you've got to hold the cylinder head onto the engine block. So this is really the problem, particularly in the, the F1 turbo era, was uh, how much power they could make was really dictated by uh, holding the cylinder head onto the block. Correct. Yep. Absolutely. Now, there are a few techniques that are, are being used or have been used, including the other F1 turbo engines for head gasket sealing. Can you talk to us about some of the usual ones you might see in a very high boost turbo engine? Yeah, well, I'm quite familiar with the RS200 engine, and that runs what we call a double eyelet um, standard type gasket. But uh, it's um, it was a solution in the early days. Then they went to what do we call a Cooper's ring, which is a um, stainless steel rolled um shim type ring which would allow the head to pant uh, was more malleable then they would generate uh, other issues with that where the next solution was a solid beryllium ring 
were which Cosworth evolved, many of the others evolved. Uh, we've done a lot of different turbo engines here, and a number of them have a solid beryllium ring. So the solid beryllium ring, can you just tell us how exactly that seals and, and where the advantage is with using that material? Yeah, the preload uh, is directly between the head face and the uh, groove of the block, um, and you would shim it if required. You'd normally have a two-thou clamping load. Um, most of the engines tend to run in the region of 95 foot-pounds of torque on the head studs, um, and the oil and water is obviously sealed with O-rings, so individual O-rings for each, each gallery, and that's how it works. Okay, so all of those techniques, good in their own right, but when you're talking about the kind of cylinder pressures that you're looking to generate in EFI, particularly in qualifying trim, where the boost was sort of wound up to the end of the scale, not sufficient or still problematic at least. So Hart went to the trouble of designing a monoblock with the head and block cast as one piece. Now, I'm guessing that that creates its own set of issues, particularly around uh, machining the valve seats and, and the ports, etc. cetera. Uh, how's that dealt with? And is that even problematic or am, am I just making that up? No, to be honest, as I mentioned to you off camera, um, though that machining process was done local to here. We're in Moulton in Essex in England. Um, it was done by a company called Modern Precision, like eight miles up the road. Um, the biggest problems they had by doing the monoblock which in the early days they hadn't realised, was the fact that they couldn't control the water flow through the block. And basically, if the water passes through the block too quickly, it doesn't take the heat away. So they started to realise that restrictions were required, as with a conventional head gasket, where obviously you have different size holes to control the water pressure and the water flow from the pump, through the head, through the skull of the chamber, and out to the radiator. And they did realise that um, they were overflowing the water system. Uh, later generation 4 and 5T actually has a dummy head gasket cast into the block to simulate a real head gasket to control the water flow, control the water pressure, and that worked really well. Now, the, these engines were developed back in the 80s, and, and we've seen technology move along a long way since then. I'm not personally familiar with casting processes, but Back then, what you were trying to do with a monoblock, in particular, you've just mentioned effectively casting in a dummy head gasket, was that really pushing the the uh, sort of technology for uh, pouring the blocks or casting the blocks, I should say, at the time? Yeah, absolutely. There was uh, basically two foundries in the UK, which most of the Formula 1 constructors were using, um, one of which was Kent Aerospace Castings, which I think is where Brian went for most of his work, his major parts anyway. Um, and as you know, they were old-fashioned, hand-built, tooling pattern work, wooden uh, patterns, um, and yeah, they were leading edge at the time. Nowadays, it's all pressure, forced induction, aluminium with different runners and different specifications, and some of it's quite well-guarded. Uh, there's one company in the UK called Granger & Worrell who is generally the go-to company for this kind of work nowadays. And that's where we would go if we were going to do anything similar in the future. Now, in terms of that finished cast block, uh, obviously sort of something like a nickel coating, you can't run the piston rings directly on the, the aluminium material. So uh, what was used there? Is there a sleeve piston or something of that nature? No, um, Brian Hart was, again, one of the forerunners into the nickel technology because he'd done it with the BDG for Cosworth 
earlier on in the 70s. So uh, obviously Nicosil that we know as Nicosil is a Mahler process in Germany. Uh, other companies around the world now have reverse engineered a similar process. It's not the same. It's very similar. Uh, but if you want true Nicosil, you have to go to Mahler. It will cost you some money, but it can be done. So this was being done all the way back in the, in the 80s with these engines. Now, one of the other things that I just want to talk about here is, of course, uh, running the, the rings on the aluminium material with nickel coatings, one thing, but also we've got the bore strength to consider. And generally, aluminium blocks are a little bit weaker in the bores than the likes of a cast iron or ductile iron sleeve. So obviously it worked, but was that just a consideration taken into account with the, the thickness of the bores when the block was cast? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going back to my RS200 experience back in the day in the hype of the Rallycross era in the England and in Europe, um, we were doing a 95, in fact, 95.25 millimeter board Evolution RS200 engine. And we had a lot of success with that. Uh, it was done between myself and Martin Schenker. Um, that was, in fact, a, a Marler Nicosil finished bore. But what we realised, because the power levels were going up even back in 88, 89, um, we were seeing 750 to 800 horsepower from a 2.4 litre Evolution RS200, but we had some block failures. And it wasn't until we had a number of block failures we realised that in the original wooden pattern type process, there were RS200 Evolution blocks that were cast with core shift. So we would typically have um, a 6 millimetre thick bore and then occasionally you get a core shift block where you've got a three mil on one side and nine mil on the other. And generally it was the thrust side where you'd always have the three mil, hence the failures. So for those who aren't aware of that term, core shift, I don't think we see that too much with foundries these days. It's sort of the technology's moved along, but that's where the uh, the patterns used for casting the block, as you've mentioned, sort of the core shift, pretty self-explanatory, actually moves, and that's where you get that the uh, thickness problem with your blocks. So I see a lot of engine builders using older engines where they'll have a number of blocks and ultrasonically test the thickness so they can find a bore which is nice and thick. Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. Now, Getting back to your monoblock here, uh, when you're assembling a block where the head and block are one piece, obviously that's going to create a few more considerations with the assembly process. Can you talk us through how these engines go together? Yeah, well, to be honest, it's not rocket science, as we would say. It's very simple. We have a, a lapping stick, a dowel, same as you would use on any cylinder head. It just happens to be about two foot long, and you go down from the uh, crankcase area of the block, down into the combustion chamber, lap the valves like you would any other valve, blew them like any other valve. Uh, and then we've just made ourselves a little handheld tool to allow us to insert the valve and put the valve seals on and the uh, valve springs and the collets. And understandably from there, the piston and conrod assembly needs to be installed from the bottom, etc., etc. Et Is there anything particularly tricky in the uh, bottom of the block, how the crankshaft's supported into the alloy block? Uh, no, it's not tricky. It's very much uh, Cosworth kind of derived um, philosophy where it's a ladder frame block. So um, with regard to the Form 5T, you've got um, main bearing numbers 1, 3 and 5 in the sump and 2 and 4 is a, a separate cap. So to assemble the engine, obviously you're going to put, as you say, the piston rod assembly in first, followed by the crankshaft, 
everything comes up together, talk together, and you can then turn the engine over to start and do the top end with the crank supported by numbers two and four main cap. Now, with the sort of power levels these engines were producing back in the 80s, as I've kind of alluded to, the technology in terms of electronic control, even turbocharger technology, is nothing like what we're seeing today. So could you give us some insight into how how was that holding them back? If back in the 80s they'd had the turbos and the EFI systems we have access to today, what sort of numbers would you have expected these engines could produce? Where is, where is the limit, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, unfortunately, we've never been asked to go maximum attack for a 1500 turbo 80s generation engine. But realistically, if we were, I think you would expect to see twice the power that that engine made back in the day if we run it on modern fuel, modern electronics, modern sensors, modern compression ratio, modern turbo, modern ECU. We would see twice. So in the case of the 4 and 5T, they realistically never saw more than 800 horsepower from a 4 and 5T when Brian Hart Limited was at Harlow, which again is in Essex local to here. Um, today, if somebody said, right, Jeff, let's go for it, I would say you would easily see 1,600 horsepower from a 1,500 Hart Form 5T. Now, even back in the day, that 800 horsepower that you've just quoted, is that just a qualifying power level or is that actually how they, how they did a full Grand Prix? I can't answer that, but I would say that was the maximum because I worked for Brian in 1996 uh, and Brian and I in those days were very, very friendly. Unfortunately, he passed away some years ago now. We all went to a funeral, as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, Brian and I used to have many, many discussions on various aeroplanes around the world about how the Form 5T evolved and how it was working back then. And Brian knew that I worked for another guy called Terry Hoyle. He knew that I'd evolved the Evolution RS200 engine, which was another uh, project that Brian did for Ford Motor Company back in the 80s. So we had lots of very, very good intimate discussions, what you could do then, what you could do now. And like I just said, if we had the opportunity today, 1,600 horsepower would be easy to achieve, I'm sure. Yeah, of course, these days, the likes of this car, which is uh, Ayrton Senna's very first car, the first car he drove in Formula One, uh, essentially priceless. So safe to assume that no one's really interested in pushing these cars or engines to the limit because it's just there for exhibition purposes. No one's trying to put them on pole position or win Grand Prix anymore. But one thing I have noticed with this car is you've done a complete electronics overhaul with the car. It is now running modern EFI. So can you talk us through that process and why you decided to go that route? That's an interesting question because we've done over the years many Hart Formula 5T engine cars um, from Lola to Tolmans to Rams, etc., etc. And um, some years ago, uh, I was the first person to try and produce a original Hart Formula 5T with four injectors per cylinder as it was back in the day uh, on a um, life racing ECU. So I went to my colleagues at Life, asked them for an ECU that would control four injectors of cylinder on a four-cylinder engine, and that became the Life Racing FHA RX. So the first prototype RX was built for GPR, and now that's a on their um, inventory. Anybody can buy one. Um, we started to run it on four injectors. This actual engine here was originally devised, derived from a, um, a four-injector, so single-injector, per cylinder, which means that the inlet system is originally mechanically injected, which we converted to a solenoid injector for ease of maintenance and so we could run it. And we are in control from the ECU. Um, so this is on a 
conventional type FHARS ECU, which works fine. So just in terms of the startup, just to give you one, give us one example of that, you've, you've talked off camera about uh, the startup process when the car was running on the original mechanical injection versus the life racing ECU. So you just uh, reiterate how that works. Well, on the original mechanical injection, it would probably take you about two hours to get it to run. Uh, today, uh, it's, a, it's a shame that the car's not running today while you're here with the cameras because um, when we had it running uh, in the workshop here three days ago, literally you would plug the starter into the back of the gearbox, press the button, pull the starter away, and we're running. You don't need to hold the throttle or hold the throttle open or make it idle. It just runs. You'd never do that on a mechanical, uh, and you'd never do it on the original Zytec. And safe to assume as well, you've got a lot more control now on fuel and ignition. So the reliability of the engine, drivability of the engine, far superior to what it would have been back in the day? Yeah, I would say this engine sitting here would be, unless you really push the edge of the limit of the turbocharger, this engine sitting here would be 100% reliable and have good longevity. You'd be talking probably... um, 25 hours longevity, which back in the day they were a two-hour engine and most of them only lasted for an hour. Um, and you could run it for you know that kind of period at three bar of boost, which would make 780 horsepower and be fine. Yeah, it sounds like plenty. Now, just uh, in terms of modifying or, I guess, modernizing is probably a better term, a historic car with that sort of value, what sort of considerations have you got going through your mind? Because obviously you don't want to destroy the originality of the car, but of course uh, adding modern electronics, as we've just discussed, makes the car uh, easier to run and a lot more usable. So yeah, so how far, where do you draw the line on what you would modify on a historic car like this, or can you just convert it back to the original mechanical if desired? Um, to be honest, we don't really draw the line. All we try and do is we try and keep as much of it as we physically can original. Yes, we've, as I said just now, we've modified the inlet system to run a solenoid injector away from the old mechanical Lucas injector, but that enables us to run the car. And you know, with respect to all these guys that collect these cars, you know, the, the crowds want to see them running. They don't want to see them parked in the museum. It's history. It, this is Senna's first car. You know, this is the ultimate if you're an Ensign Senna fan. Um, a lot of people think the Senna car is the 84 car, which was the famous Monaco in the wet car. Yes, it is the Monaco in the wet car, but this is the TG183B, which is the first car he drove, first race of 84, which was Brazil, which was his home race, and it's the first car he drove and he scored his first point with. You've got to respect that history, and obviously no one can take that away. Look, Jeff, it's been great to get that insight onto this car, Uh, a little bit of information about the original F1 turbo era, which certainly I've always been interested in, so we really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. No problem, and come again next year. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.